0: You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome today to today's virtual program with Inforum with the Commonwealth Club. I'm Raj Mathai, weeknight news anchor at NBC Bay Area. I'm pleased to be in conversation with Congressman Eric Swalwell. Since being elected in 2012, he's represented the 15th Congressional District of California, which covers southern and eastern Alameda County. He's here to discuss his new book called Endgame, Inside the Impeachment of Donald J. Trump. If you'd like to ask Congressman Swalwell a question, please be a part of this, question, be a part of this conversation, be a part of this discussion. We welcome your feedback and your questions. Uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, you can just ask a question in the chat function there. And if you're watching us on Facebook, you can ask a question in the comments uh, function there. So we look forward to hearing from you. Uh, Without further ado, let's begin. Let's bring in our Congressman Eric Swalwell. Congressman, nice to have you on the program. Good to see you. Yeah,
1: thanks so much, Raj, and thanks to the club for having me
0: back. Uh, Usually we do this in person, but of course this is our new reality, and now that we are Zooming here, I see you're coming to us from a very clean kitchen. Are you in Washington, D.C. right now? (laughs) I'm in Washington. I was home yesterday in Pleasanton,
1: uh, touring some of our drive through testing sites, but I took the red eye last night because we had a judiciary committee hearing today. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's very weird, Raj. I'll tell you, flying, uh, these days, uh, you know, the airports are, they're just, uh, you know, ghost, uh, towns right now. And, uh, it's a strange experience that I'm looking forward to coming out of.
0: Yeah, I think you speak for a lot of us here. Uh, Because we're Zooming here, we will be Zoom-bombed perhaps by your two young kids, or are they down for the night, just so we know what to expect?
1: (laughs) Uh, That would be be a massive failure on my part. Uh, They should be uh, in bed, but yes, I have a three-year-old Nelson, a one-year-old Cricket, and a uh, Black Lab Penny, uh, who is the most likely one uh, to Zoom or beg or just want to go outside and needs my attention.
0: So uh, you know, I beg you got a, uh, your forgiveness. You, you got a full house. I have two kids here as well. So I'll ask your forgiveness in advance as well. Uh, let's talk about this. First of all, you know, I've known you for so many years now. And when I first got the copy of the book, um, I was like very, of course, very interested in reading it, excited about it. But I thought, you know what, you know, I'm going to have to roll up my sleeves. This is going to be a heavy lift. We're going to go into the nuts and bolts of exactly what's happened, of uh, the impeachment of the president. Yes, you do have the nuts and bolts there, but also you weaved it in with a lot of personal stories, a lot of anecdotes, and for me, a lot of behind the scenes look, not only in Washington, D.C., but here in California as well. Um, Congratulations. It's a really good read. Uh, Thank you. And and Raj, uh, to be honest, uh,
1: in some ways, it's a children's book. Uh, And what I mean by that is uh, the only way I was able to write it was each day after an investigation or an interview. Or a deposition, uh, when I would put my daughter down to bed instead of reading to her or singing to her, uh, I took out my uh, iPhone and I uh, used an app that would uh, allow me to dictate and transcribe. And so I, I would say to her what had happened that day, but to make sure that she wouldn't fuss or get frustrated, you know, I had to tell it in a sing song voice. So I'd be like, and then Mr. Schiff said, Mr. Meadows, please sit down, you're not recognized. And so she would go along with it, so the audio version will be a children's book, I guess.
0: <laughs> well said. Look, we're going to talk about this, and, and we're looking forward to it. And I, we know you're so busy—not just nine months ago or six months ago, but even in these last few weeks—we're going to talk about the impeachment process in the book, also just talk about what's happening today and this week in in our nation's capital, uh, and also the social unrest as well. Uh, the opening line here uh, of the book, which which I was kind of—I always like to look at the opening and closing, and of course get to the middle part. But how do you stop a rogue president. How do you protect our country from a man who lies? Our Constitution offers one remedy, and that is impeachment. And let me ask you, is that the remedy? Because the president was impeached, but nothing much has changed.
1: Uh, we are the remedy now. Uh, I, you know, I found, uh, and I laid this out in the book, uh, that one, he was worthy of being impeached. The evidence certainly uh, directed us to do that. Two, I think if we did not impeach him, you would lower the standard for future presidents as far as what is acceptable. And I, I didn't want a future Congress to say, well, Donald Trump wasn't impeached, so the, the next you know man or woman who's president, we're gonna allow them uh, to continue. Uh, and three, uh, and this is what I learned during uh, the investigation, when you stand up to Donald Trump, you actually stop his corruption. And so once we launched that investigation, that's only when Ukraine got the aid that they were supposed to get. It, it took us doing that for the correct result to happen. And, and that I didn't think about as much when we engaged uh, initially on impeachment, but it's something I learned along the way.
0: And you said that in the book also, you said, stand up to the bully. Uh, let me see if I, if I wrote that down. Uh, but you, you essentially said, stand up to the bully. That's what I've been taught to do from your father. And that's what we're continuing to do. And that works. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, Raj. So it's really also a tribute to my father. Uh, My earliest memory as I laid out in Endgame uh, was my father as a police chief uh, in a small town in Iowa. And so uh, my father, Raj, uh, I remember my mom and dad talking about him perhaps being fired. And it's my earliest memory because I remember as a kid, you're thinking, well, what do you mean? He's going to be fired, like is he going to be put in an actual fire. And I later learned that what they were discussing was my father had come to Iowa to clean up small town corruption. And so uh, within a year of being police chief, uh, the DUI arrests went from like four to 40, not because they developed a drinking problem. He just actually uh, enforced the law. And he had also uh, really cracked a burglary ring in town. And it turned out many of the uh, suspects were related to uh, powerful and wealthy family members in the town. And the mayor didn't like that. And it all came to a head in a very Iowa fashion at the county fair, uh, when the mayor's friends wanted to park in the fire lane. And my dad got a call from the fire chief saying, chief, they won't leave. Should I ticket and tow them or just let them get away with it? My dad said, no, no one's above the law. Ticket and tow them. And you wouldn't believe this, but at the next council meeting, the mayor told my dad, reverse the tickets for my friends or you're going to be fired. And my dad refused to do it. And he was willing to lose his job and he ultimately did lose his job. So I saw it the age of five years old, uh, someone who was willing to do the right thing, lose their job, uh, and later, uh, of course, you know, about thirty-four years later, uh, I would, in a much different way, uh, be a part of a team that, you know, was willing to hold the president accountable uh, and, and see people like Marie Ivanovich and Lieutenant Colonel Vinman uh, risk everything and, and lose their jobs uh, because
0: they wanted to do the right thing. December eighteenth. Correct me if I'm wrong. 2019. That's when the impeachment happened. It seems like ages ago. We have lived in these last six months. It seems like we've lived six or sixty years. Does it seem like long ago to you? Because so much has happened. It, it
1: does. Yeah. You know, right after uh,
0: impeachment
1: uh, in the House, is we were moving into the Senate. If you recall, there was the uh, attack on uh, General Suleimani, uh, and that was a, a big deal to take you know, such an aggressive uh, strike, uh, you know, off of, uh, you know, a non-declared battlefield. Uh, And then a pandemic hits. And of course, uh, finally, uh, we're seeing, you know, racial justice uh, coming to the Congress and coming to our streets. Uh, But the president's impeached forever. And when I said this is really on all of us now, uh, he, if we're truly going to be at the right end game, he's going to have to be impeached and removed at the ballot box because uh, we can try and, you know, hold him accountable, conduct oversight from now until November. Uh, But it's now on every American. uh, If you care about restoring and rebuilding this country, that has to come at the ballot
0: box. We all watched it, uh, or many of us did, on TV, those daily briefings uh, there in December. Uh, You were in the book, took us behind the scenes. This was what I appreciated. Uh, You said uh, Congressman Schiff, one of your colleagues there, said, you know what, we have to see and rehearse and practice because What goes out on TV will mean a lot in terms of the court of public opinion. Now, we all believe that that's what was happening, but you really say it that it was a rehearsal and you did have that in mind of what we would see on the TV side of it.
1: Uh, You know, everything was purposeful, uh, nothing was accidental. And with Chairman Schiff, you know, practice and preparation uh, was foremost uh, for him. Uh, He wanted us to be able to tell the American people simply what the president had done. And so we arrived at, he put his personal Interests above national security and election integrity that was it it was as simple as that personal interests over national security and election integrity and Schiff would just hammer us on making sure during our questioning of the witnesses that we were not losing track of what the the core issue was here that the president was at the center of the scheme. he wasn't some ancillary actor in this scheme. he was at the center of the scheme and, and you know it was really a, a privilege to work alongside him. Uh, with this. And Raj, I I laid out in the book, I I noticed after, you know, each long day of witness testimony, uh, Schiff would kind of bring it all back home uh, and tell us what it really meant. And I assumed that, you know, he had written out long notes uh, that he had prepared, you know, weeks ahead of time uh, in those closing arguments, uh, but he knew the case so well uh, that he was just doing it from memory. Uh, And that was what was so remarkable was how well uh, the chairman knew the case and I would say, frankly, uh, how unprepared on the other side
0: uh, that they were—that came out a lot too. You wrote about this, uh, the Bob Mueller testimony. "Quote the blockbuster that wasn't," uh, the headline in the New York Times. Was that disheartening to all of you trying to get this push this through? Yeah, because the, you know the media
1: had you know built up that Mueller was going to come in, and I, I think they wanted, as I said in the book, a Broadway show and a Tony-winning performance. And when he didn't live up to that, at least. Theatrically, uh, it was regarded as a dud, but if you were to just read the transcript or listen to what he was saying, uh, it was quite damning uh, that the president had invited and welcomed and prepared uh, to receive Russian interference and then committed 10 different obstructive acts uh, of justice. Uh, That was quite damning, and and although the press panned his uh, quote-unquote performance, uh, you saw this cascade effect of new members of Congress coming on board, calling for impeachment. Uh, afterward, and and I think that means that people were listening, at least within our caucus, to what he was saying, and not as focused on, you know, how he was delivering the evidence.
0: Congressman, I got to ask you, as we do this live, and as we record this for various platforms here, uh, the news today about Michael Flynn, uh, the news today uh, about Bolton this week, uh, what goes through your mind when you see all this, uh, including Bill Barr, the Attorney General?
1: Now, we're we're in this Russia vortex that the president brought upon himself and the country. And and you're right. Here we are uh, years later after the president said, Russia, if you're listening, uh, we saw they were listening. They attacked our democracy. We're still picking up the pieces and we're still paying the price for the president putting his personal interests above the country's. And so today, you know, Michael Flynn uh, will have his case dismissed where he talked to the Russian ambassador before he was national security advisor, asked them not to uh, give blistering sanctions against the United States, Lied to the vice president about it, lied to FBI agents about it, pleaded guilty and admitted that he had done it, and now he's going to get away with it in a way that most ordinary Americans uh, would not. And so it's not just the Russia involvement. Again, it's the rule of law being thrown out the window. And you know, and I just want to say, in Bolton's book, he titled his book "The Room Where It Happened." And the truth is, I was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened was where people like Lieutenant Colonel Vindman and Fiona Hill and Masha Ivanovich came forward. And as I said, they risked everything to give sworn testimony against the president and his corruption. And so that is courageous. What John Bolton has done, it, it, there's nothing patriotic about uh, what he has done or you know, how he's telling his story today.
0: Bill Barr, you have a legal background, a former uh, Alameda County deputy district attorney. Uh, Your legal analysis of our attorney general right now, and what lines he might be crossing, in your opinion?
1: I, I, Mr. Barr acts as Donald Trump's personal lawyer when he needs to be America's lawyer. And the, we had a hearing today with Department of Justice whistleblowers who came forward, uh, and one of them was the Roger Stone prosecutor. And he told us that Roger Stone committed multiple acts of obstruction. It hindered the investigation into Donald Trump and Russia because there are gaps because of obstructive acts and lies and deceit from Stone. Most people get a lighter sentence if they take responsibility early in the proceedings. Stone did not do that. He went to trial. He was convicted at trial. He was found to have lied to the judge during pretrial. and so he got a stiffer sentence than someone who had taken responsibility early. Only once the president tweeted as this prosecutor said today at 2:40 in the morning that Roger Stone's sentence Uh, you know, should be reduced. Does the prosecutor wake up and find that Bill Barr and his team are going to recommend a much lower sentence? And we saw this theme, you know, from Stone and Flynn, and not only protecting your friends that the president has done, but punishing your enemies, you know, going after Michael Cohen and, and tweeting that Michael Cohen should go to prison. And that's what's just so disturbing. And Bill Barr, you know, continues to
0: enable that. Bill Barr's had a reputable career, if you ask Democrats or Republicans, throughout his history, his career in Washington, D.C. What changed in your mind? You know, and I I wrote in the book that a good friend uh, who's a Republican had told
1: me, look, you know, he's uh, the best of the worst, as far as you're concerned, for people who could be attorney general. Like, if if you're just looking at this about being concerned about who the president can nominate, he's a serious uh, white-shoe lawyer. He's going to come in and, you know, just follow the evidence. And I believe that. And, and there were people who wrote recommendations uh, you know, for him who have good reputations. But Raj, I, th- I think the, the most concerning thing he had done, which was probably an ominous warning for us, was that he had written this 17 page letter before he was nominated, unsolicited to the Department of Justice, arguing that the Mueller investigation uh, was unlawful. And that should have told us everything about what Bill Barr uh, was going to do next.
0: You look at it and we see it. And as a journalist at NBC, I watch a lot of different networks. I watch a lot of different platforms. I watch a lot of different blogs and, and read and try to digest it all. There are two narratives in this country. And it's not for me to say what's right and what's wrong, but there is a correct and a factually correct and factually incorrect narrative. I will watch Fox News, for example, and see something that's totally different from MSNBC or CNN. How do you get the message of what's truthful in this country out to millions of Americans who might not be getting the the real truth?
1: Uh, It's a real problem, and I'm the son of two Republicans and married a girl from southern Indiana. And the only reason I go on Fox News is so my family can see me on TV, right? Uh, Otherwise, they'd file a missing persons alert. And I see this, the cable news effect and, and, you know, what it has done. I think to to families and, and to culture, and, and I, I particularly think um, it's had a, a destructive uh, effect. And I still engage though with Fox News as as much as I think it's been destructive. I still want to go in and make sure that I'm challenged. That's important, but also that I speak up for the facts. One of my colleagues said it best, um, Sean Patrick Maloney uh, on the Intelligence Committee. You know, he said his expectation for the media is that if someone says it's raining outside, that the media does not go and find someone who says it's not raining outside to balance the story, but they open the door and look outside and report on whether it's raining. And and I think a a frustration that I've had is with this administration, you know, sometimes, you know, there's a temptation to want to, you know, balance the story when, as you said, there's really, there can be many stories, but there's only one version uh, of the truth.
0: Well, it's interesting you bring up that analogy. Yes, I think many media members will say it's raining outside, but it's a matter of what color is the rain? Where is it raining? Is it sprinkling? Is it hailing? Uh, that's where all of a sudden you start to delineate of, of what's correct. Uh, I have two uh, friends of mine you know, uh, who who come from, who, who are hardcore Republicans, and will say, you know, it's Speaker Pelosi's fault, and we are getting out of California, bringing it back here to your district, because simply the politics are insufferable and the taxes are too high. How do you communicate with them? Because obviously in your own family, you have that school of thought to a certain degree.
1: I I hear that uh, a lot. And when I was in Indiana recently with my wife's family, uh, someone said to me and her family, why does California get to dictate everything that we do in the country? And I I told them, I said, well, you know, to be candid, uh, California is a donor state. You know, we put more money into the federal government than we get back. And so that should count uh, for something. but I, I do understand, as someone who was born in Iowa, uh, that growing up in the Midwest uh, or living, you know, I went to school in the South, that you can feel like the country is run by the coasts and that you don't matter. And I, I think we can't discount that. And that's why, as I said, I, I still you know, try and engage as much as I can with uh, Republicans to try and listen to them. And from my father-in-law, who's very conservative, voted for the president, I learn a lot from him. When he challenges my beliefs and it it does help me defend my beliefs and sometimes i'll say you know what he's right he's right about you know the the argument he's making and i don't need to focus on that particular issue maybe as much as i think and so keeping an open mind is hard right now uh and and raj frankly you have a hard job because you know you're not going to make anybody happy uh in the media and that's not your job is to make people happy but you know the left is going to say that you're not hard enough on the president the right's going to say you know fake news media bias
0: uh, and that can be, I, I imagine, quite disorienting. It's, it's challenging. What's What's interesting now uh, you, that you brought it up, Congressman, is the networks have picked a picked a lane. Fox is right. MSNBC is left. CNN is you know uh, wherever you want to think that CNN is. Uh, it's the local news outlets that have become really valuable. And I've I've just seen this not only in the politics of these last three or four years, but also in the social unrest of something that here are just the factual based things that happen. But even as we try to be right down the middle, it is hard because we will get people on the left and the right criticizing our coverage. But uh, of course, that's for another conversation. And viewership, by the way,
1: is up viewerships up for local news since the pandemic hit. Uh, And I actually think that's a good thing, because, uh, you know, I remember uh, Dennis Richmond, uh, essentially, you know, tucking me into bed every night uh, is, you know, I went to bed and we would watch the 10 o'clock news. Like he was a trusted figure in our house. We had no idea what his, pub, what his politics were.
0: Yeah, and you're right. Viewership is up by more than 40 percent for us at NBC uh, for a lot of reasons, A, because everyone's home, but also because there are real information, life and death information that we need to pass along. So it's been a fascinating few months here. Uh, Let's talk about what's going to come up in these next four to five months, the presidential one, a presidential race that you were part of running for president. You dropped out, I believe, last July. Uh, How difficult was that to be in that race? And then how difficult was it to drop out? Making the decision to run is is the hardest part,
1: I believe, of running. Uh, once you make the decision, I, I think it, it is a little bit easier because you're in. Um, I ran for two reasons. One, of course, to win, and if I was to win, to make a difference. And when it looked like I was not going to win, I didn't want to stay in and drag my family, my staff, volunteers,
0: constituents through you know a windmill. Uh, chasing endeavor. Uh, and let me, let not- me jump in here. Uh, yeah. for those of you who don't know your background, when you ran in 2012 here in the East Bay, you weren't supposed to yeah. win. You were a nobody. You didn't have any money. You're going up against a kingpin. So uh, I can see kind of that, that fighting spirit that you have. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. And, and I'm glad you brought that up
1: because what I learned running for president was that I couldn't project what I had done in 2012, running against a 40 year incumbent as a started the race as a 30 year old no wife, no kids, able to, you know, I, I left my job at the district attorney's office, you know, cashed out my pension to to live for a year without a salary. I could put every single second of the day into that race. And here I was, you know, running for president with, you know, married, a wife who works full time uh, at the time, a two-year-old uh, and a, a infant. And I couldn't put in and I should not put in, you know, the time that I put when I was running for Congress. It was frustrating to me that I couldn't be everywhere I wanted to be. Um, and that, that was the hardest part of it was just realizing I could be a, a good father to a young family and a, a good husband, or I could be a better candidate. And I don't regret you know, how I balanced my time, uh, but I, I do appreciate anyone who has run and anyone who's won because uh, the gauntlet that you go through and, and the way that you're vetted and tested, uh, it, it truly is unlike any, any job that you'll ever apply for uh, in the world.
0: In my opinion, your 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 big moment, uh, your flashpoint moment as a presidential candidate was that debate when you told Joe Biden, uh, Vice President Biden, uh, that passed the torch, passed the torch. Obviously, that torch has not been passed, but I thought what was really interesting is after you dropped out of the race, who was the first call to you?
1: It was Vice President Biden. And he told me, he said, I, I don't know where this race is going to go uh, and if I'm going to win, but if I do... Uh, my promise to you, because uh, I hear you on pass the torch, is that I will enable uh, young leaders uh, to step up, and, and that's just that's the vice president uh, that I've known uh, for so many years, as someone who's you know sincere and genuine. And I, you know, I thought Raj honestly, as I was preparing for the debate, and I, I wrote in the book that a presidential candidate Biden, at my age, because he was a, a young man when he first ran. If he could have found that line on his opponent, he would have made the same argument. And he pulled me aside at the debate on one of the breaks and kind of gave me a like, "Okay, wise guy. I I hear you. And then he asked me how my daughter was doing because he knew that she had recently had a respiratory issue and was at the ICU. But again, that's that's just the kind of guy he is. Uh, He's not like the president. He he doesn't take it personal. He's not thin skinned.
0: Um, He's a statesman. Tell me one or two reasons why President Trump will not win and get reelected this November. Because everything we say, not we, excuse me, everything that people say of criticizing him and what he's done wrong and his missteps, whether it's about COVID or the social unrest or the impeachment, it doesn't seem to impact him. Tell me why he won't win come November. We've seen this before.
1: Uh, In 1980, uh, Ronald Reagan brilliantly asked the country, are you better off than you were four years ago? And what's so brilliant about that? Because Reagan, you know, at the time was one of the oldest persons to run for president. You know, was not running as a Barack Obama superstar. By asking that question, he says two things: one, how are you doing? Are you doing better? And two, he makes it a referendum by in, invoking the four years ago on the current president. Right now, we're in the worst economy in a hundred years. Uh, we're seeing uh, again a failure in, in public health, and we're seeing the president's continuous failures in leadership, not just with the pandemic, but now uh, with racial inequality in the country. So Joe Biden doesn't have to be Barack Obama or you know, a, a sizzling candidate like Bill Clinton. He just has to ask that question, are you better off? And Donald Trump doesn't have the foil of Hillary Clinton. And, and I saw when I ran for president across the country, Raj, that unfairly, people just We're not going to cross the Rubicon and vote for Secretary Clinton. And I saw that in my own family, Republicans who did not vote for Donald Trump, but they didn't vote for Secretary Clinton. They just left that part of the ballot blank, who are now telling me that this election, uh, they're going to vote for Joe Biden. And and so I I think he's in real trouble. I think it's going to be an earthquake election uh, if we can get through the misinformation, voter suppression And welcoming of foreign interference.
0: Is it just uh, media hype? And I say that as a member of NBC, that uh, we're focusing so much on the vice president's pick, whoever that might be, um, or is that something that really needs to be thought out, especially what's been happening in this country in the last few weeks?
1: Always needs to be thought out. And you have somebody who appreciates how important the role is in Vice President Biden. And yes, of course, to to go a little bit into the, you know, the details uh, or just into the decision-making, because the decision has not been made yet, I think it's interesting. Once it's made, you know, I I think we're going to focus on, you know, who's at the top of the ticket. I believe Vice President Biden wants, one, someone who's qualified and can be president if they had to be, uh, and two, somebody who he can work with. And I I think third, uh, and also important, he said that he's going to pick a a woman. Uh, I am fortunate that two of the leading candidates I I know well and, and could attest to Kamala Harris uh, is a former Alameda County prosecutor uh, as well. She's a terrific senator for the state. And then Val Demings uh, served. She's the other person in Congress uh, besides myself who who served on the Judiciary and Intelligence Committee. And so I've seen Val up close and personal. Former Orlando uh, police chief uh, was there when the Pulse nightclub uh, you know tragedy happened. Uh, just made of steel. Uh, so he's got a, a number of. Good choices in front of them. Uh,
0: be, being here in the Bay Area, we know uh, we know uh, Senator Harris very well. Uh, we don't know Representative Demings as well. What's something that we don't know about her that we haven't read now in the last couple of months since she's been the, since she's been the hot name?
1: She has uh, just the, the deepest belly laugh, uh, just a terrific <laughs> sense of humor. I, I love hearing Val laugh uh, because uh, I mean she she's got a great laugh. Uh, I laid out in the book, uh, Raj, when. The Republicans stormed the SCIF, if you recall. Uh, We had the SCIF, Secure Compartmentalized Information Facility. It's three floors beneath the Capitol. It's a secure room. It's where the Intelligence Committee meets. No phones, no cameras, no notes taken out. And one of our depositions, uh, about 50 or so Republicans, uh, pushed past the Capitol police officers, went into the, the SCIF because they claimed they were not allowed to come in brought their phones in and just made a mockery of the place. And I I chose, and I don't know if it was the right decision, but I I just looked straight ahead. I didn't want to engage with them because I really believed they wanted someone to get in their face and make a spectacle of it or, or have some sort of physical altercation. You're talking and about I, your I Republican counterparts. My Republican right? colleagues. And as a prosecutor, when I was starting out, I would get so upset and emotional and heated if the defense attorney said something that misrepresented the facts and I later learned that the jury's always watching and, and they, they want you to be the one that you know is trusted. But Val, um, and I think she was the most authoritative person as a police chief to say this, she looked at them and it was like you could hear a pin drop when she started speaking. She said, you guys, and it was guys because it was all white men who would come in on their side. She said, you guys should be ashamed of yourself. And I don't know how you're going to explain to your children and God what you are doing right now. It was just a stirring moment and they didn't say anything to her. They just kind of hung their heads, but uh, she's made of steel. She really is.
0: You say something and it just triggered me uh, when you, when you brought up uh, the representative there, uh, Demings, uh, as you closed that book, as you closed the book that you read, I don't know which end game is underway, but I know that I'm going to believe, but I know I'm going to believe the American people. I'm going to believe the founders had it right, but we are all have to work together. With what's happening in this country the last few weeks, a lot of people don't believe the founders had it right. How do you respond to that? They did, and, and they never intended
1: for it to be uh, easy. Um, I remember one of my constituents is John Madden, uh, coach, and uh, I was invited to a barbecue uh, that he was at a couple years ago, and I remember Coach Madden said to me, he said, uh, you know, boy, Eric, uh, things are pretty effed up in, in Washington right now. And I said, coach, you know, in the history of uh, two people standing around at a barbecue, I don't think one has ever leaned over to another and said, boy, they're doing a great job in Washington. Isn't Congress just great? I think it was designed to be in conflict, to to have, you know, a check and balance against, you know, the presidency. Uh, to do big things when called upon to do big things, uh, but it, it was never intended uh, to be easy. But it was always intended to reflect the will of the voters, and, and that's why I was so determined in 2017 uh, to work uh, to help us get the majority and make Nancy Pelosi, Minority Leader Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi. And thank God we did, because I just cannot imagine where we would be right now in a pandemic with these questions of you know racial inequality, uh, with the president's you know corruption. If we didn't uh, achieve that. And then the founders uh, gave us the ability to do that.
0: Are you pleasantly surprised or not surprised at all that so many white Americans are jumping on board this movement to support blacks and people of color?
1: Uh, Heartened uh, and surprised. And, you know, a black member of my staff uh, told me, and I really took this to heart, you know, right because I wanted to offer immediately legislation that I had thought up or had. Been working on around uh, police reform, and she said to me, "You know, right now we should really listen to what the Congressional Black Caucus uh, is saying uh, and let and defer to them. That they, they've lived these experiences, uh, and you know, we don't need necessarily you know white saviors. We need white allies. And you know, I think she's right uh, that this is really a time to let the people like you know Barbara Lee, uh, who's a leader." Uh, my neighbor in Oakland, uh, people like Karen Bass down in LA, who's written a lot of the legislation, you know, John Lewis, who's marched, uh, you know, on these issues, you know, let them lead and be the allies that can help uh, get this across, you know, the goal line.
0: You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Change will happen, do you think? Uh, yes. Regardless who's in the Oval Office, or is it only depending if there's a new president come November?
1: It's already happening, Raj. Right, you're seeing um, in the Capitol, you know, Confederate monuments uh, are being moved across the country. Uh, you know, states and, and municipalities are taking them down. Rhode Island is, is cutting half of its name out uh, because it was a, a tribute, um, you know, to uh, to slavery and. Corporate America is recognizing uh, that they need to have, uh, you know, black voices and, you know, um, the African-American community, uh, not just in the workforce, but at the, you know, at the boardroom table. And so I do see, you know, change coming and it will come faster and it will be, I believe, more uh, equitable. Uh, We will be more equitable as a country if it's a President Biden. uh, But people among, you know, upon themselves are, are really, I think, stepping up, and that's encouraging.
0: Congressman Swalwell, we're getting a lot of uh, really good, insightful comments and questions uh, on YouTube and Facebook. If I can ask you one, this is from Sharon. Uh, Congressman, what are the one or two things you believe are most important to push as top issues for the average American for this coming election?
1: Healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. Uh, again, we're in a global pandemic, and access to healthcare you know continues to be top of mind for most Americans and uh, making it affordable and also not just finding a cure uh, for uh, covid-19 but as we struggle to fight covid-19 you know we still want to make sure on alzheimer's parkinson's uh, cancer that we're investing in genomic research and having targeted therapies and so you know i really i believe being the party that is for addition when it comes to healthcare And pointing out that President Trump has always been for subtraction, taking it away and reducing someone's access. I think that is a simple way that will connect with the American people. But I I think that has to be a a top issue. And then as a parent, the reason I ran for president was the belief that we're uh, at this pivotal point in our country where we can say enough is enough and end gun violence uh, and and that we don't have to live this way anymore, where we fear uh, for our children's lives when they go Uh, to school or our own when we go to church or synagogue or a mosque or out in the public and and that we really have an opportunity to pass universal background checks and ban uh, assault weapons. And I'm really excited to continue to play a role in the Congress uh, to advance that
0: legislation. That's been a big big function of you in your your years in office here. You said your parents were Republicans, your dad's part of the NRA. What are your conversations with him? uh, And is he totally against what you're trying to do?
1: Mostly against what I'm trying to do. Um, he he texted me uh, about a year and a half ago uh, the picture of the cover of the NRA magazine and and I was on it uh, that's how I first found out that they had put me uh, on the cover and you know I, I've tried to talk to my dad because he's a gun owner and he is a hunter and, and took me and my brothers hunting when we were kids and two brothers right now are cops in Alameda County and I tell them that selfishly. One of the reasons I care so much about this issue is I want to protect you because I, I've seen you know the weapons on the street and that you know right now you know we are all uh, susceptible you know to being in a, a mass shooting with an assault rifle being used and having little chance to respond. So this is really about you and I, I don't want to take away your right to shoot for sport or hunt with your family or God forbid ever have to protect yourself. And I think we can do all of that uh, and. Just make sure that we're all safer in the community. You're seeing it
0: firsthand. I I see it. It's a tough issue, though, Raj. I'm not going to lie to you.
1: It can be uncomfortable. And and
0: I wasn't aware that your your brothers are are, uh, law enforcement as well. It's a tough issue. Their thoughts about what's happening now? Because there's such a crackback on police right now uh, across the country.
1: Yeah. And I went and spoke a couple weeks ago uh, to a police lineup uh, in Alameda County. And I told them that, you know, my hope for them is that they not only have power because we've given them power, which can be measured, vests, handcuffs, service, uh, pistol, but we want them to have authority, that they're respected and trusted in the community. And right now there's a, a deficit of authority and that they have to appreciate that. But Raj, I I, I hope what connected with them, uh, because I, I think my brothers took this seriously when I told them. A couple weeks ago, a black member of our community told me that he only feels safe twice a day when he wakes up in his own home and when he comes home from work and gets back into his own home. And he said, in between, he drives a nice car and people in his neighborhood look at him and think he's a drug dealer or he stole it. He sees police officers routinely pull behind him and run his plates and he feels like he's being targeted. And I told my brothers that this individual is a police captain on your force. So if he feels unsafe, imagine how you know, black Americans who are not police officers, imagine how they feel uh, in the community. And I really think that you know, having more diverse uh, police forces, in addition to what we're going to do in the Justice and Policing Act uh, that will pass tomorrow, uh, will go a long way
0: uh, on this issue. I've talked to plenty of cops. Obviously, there are near family as well. The response is some of the time to that or many of the time is, look, we're fearing for our lives, too, because we don't know. What that suspect or person might do based on prior things. So, I mean, it's it, it's it's a fear of their own safety in many ways.
1: It is, and it's a it's a real fear. Uh, you know, we you remember uh, when I, w- I was a prosecutor in the office when we lost four Oakland uh, police officers, uh, and it happened in a matter of, of seconds. The first two were killed, and then in an you know, apartment, the, suspect- and some,
0: the, the gunman was in the closet and, and busted out. I yep. believe correct. That's that's right, and, and so we lost four officers in a matter of you know uh,
1: sec- seconds for the first two, and then so, know, so about and an hour if, later. If so
0: we- it's so, so it's hard for for police officers to hear this that oh you know what just let, put your guns down, uh, don't be as violent, don't be as scared. Of course, that's what they should do. Don't be as violent and put your guns down. However, there's a history there, regardless of someone's color of skin, of a bad guy or what they perceive to be a g- bad guy, and their own safety.
1: No, that's absolutely right. And what I believe is that, you again, you can't approach every situation as if, you know, the person you're pulling over is going to, you know, pull, you, you have to be prepared for the fact that you may, you know, have to protect yourself and others. But when you look at what happened with Mr. Floyd or, you know, Rashad Brooks uh, in Atlanta, I mean, those situations, you know, so easily could have been diffused without using lethal force. And, and that's what The Justice and Policing Act is going to go to. It's going to go to how we hire officers, train officers, and the policies that you know departments have. And and again, I I just happen to believe that the more diverse a police force is, the farther you can go to reduce you know any unconscious or implicit bias that officers uh, carry. But um, I'm not pretending that it's going to be easy. And again, I understand because I'm in a law enforcement family. You know, the mindset of, of going you know to a domestic violence dispute and knowing that that can be a very dangerous situation, I just happen to think that the numbers don't lie. Black Americans don't trust the police. They don't trust the police for good reason, because disproportionately, uh, they are victims of police shootings.
0: Yeah, that is factual. Uh, I want to talk about uh, a couple more things in the book, and also we have a lot of questions to get to in these last 15 minutes. Uh, Something that was, uh, that stood out to me that was, that was kind of fun. The inauguration in 2017 of President Trump. uh, I was there as well, covering it for NBC, uh, but I was not there for the lunch after the inauguration. And your, your seatmates, uh, your dinner ear, your, your lunchmates at the table, Blew my mind! What what an interesting collection of people there that were sitting at that table with you. Go ahead and take it away. <laughs> I,
1: I had just been elected into the leadership team, uh, and one of the, I guess, benefits uh, or burdens, depending on how, how you look at it, is that you go to a lunch uh, right after the president is inaugurated, uh, and it's inside uh, Statuary Hall, which used to be the floor of the House of Representatives uh, in, until 1859. And in Statuary Hall, you know, there's all these. Eight top tables, and I'm just looking at my guest card and the table I'm seated at, wondering like where I've been assigned. And I see the first person I see is Speaker John Boehner, former Speaker, and I thought, well, this is fine. Like, you know, I'm from California, I love red wine. He's, you know, not shy about talking about liking red wine. Maybe we'll get along. Uh, and then I saw a senator from Idaho, which uh, Republican senator, and thought it'd be interesting to meet him. And then Raj, I saw Sheldon Adelson. And I, you know, I, my stomach started to sink a little bit. Uh, he'd spent so much money, you know, millions against Democrats. But I also figured, well, the Raiders are still negotiating in Vegas, Sheldon's a part of the deal. Maybe I can get some insight on what's going to happen to the Raiders. And then there was an open seat, which was my seat. And next to my seat was Kellyanne Conway. <laughs> and it, you could I write thought, a book about that lunch yeah,
0: specifically.
1: <laughs> I thought... What did I what had I done to Speaker Pelosi, you know, to get this seat assignment? Like, is she mad at me? Like, did I, you know, do something wrong? It was as bad as it sounds. Uh, and the whole time, Kellyanne was leaning over me to talk to Sheldon Adelson. Uh, I made a joke to her to just try and break the ice. I said, you know, Kellyanne, you know, congratulations on you know win. I'm sorry that you know the first reward you get. Uh, is working for the president is that you have to sit next to a bay area democrat and and she just didn't laugh Uh, no response huh didn't want to yeah didn't want to engage
0: a couple of quick hitters here you were a waiter at one point at tortilla coast which is a restaurant i still believe uh, in 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 business in dc uh, and also a towel boy there at the washington sports club this was during college what'd you learn quick things of what'd you learn uh kind of just serving people there and seeing a lot of members of congress come in Yep. I
1: I learned that if I call, if I memorize their names uh, in the congressional Facebook, I would get better tips. Uh, Shocking that members of Congress can be so easily flattered. But whenever I am hiring for my team, if somebody worked as a restaurant uh, server, uh, they go to the top of the list because I know uh, how hard that is, how you have to prioritize, how you have to learn how to say you're sorry when it's, you know, even not your fault. Uh, it, it really is good training for anyone, I, I think, who wants to go into public service.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I'm a former busboy and a waiter and a grocery checker. So uh, I, I, it's it's phenomenal training in terms of uh, people skills and uh, learning how to do things under fire. Well said. Okay, so let's get to some questions now from our audience. We're getting some real good questions. Um, Steve says, Congressman Swalwell, how do we combat voter suppression? That is a very good question. I'm not sure about the answer, especially of what we're having to deal with with the current administration?
1: it's Raj, frankly the most common question uh, I get these days. so I, I think beneath the surface, it's a submarine effort to go to the courts in every area where there are issues with you know voter roll purging or uh, you know moving ballot boxes or you know collapsing polling places. So fight beneath the surface in the courts. and I say beneath the surface because I don't believe, We want to make too much of a public issue of voter suppression because you could actually suppress the vote by talking all day long about voter suppression. And if you think about it, it makes sense. You have a single mom in Georgia. She's got to pick up her little girl after school, maybe has an hour between doing that and feeding her, bathing her, getting her to bed. And if all she hears from the Democrats is that the Republicans are going to suppress the vote, she may just say, you know what? this thing's already you know, baked. I'm not going to show up. So we need to motivate people above the surface on the issues so that the result cannot be denied. And as I said, beneath the surface, you know, fight like hell in the courts. Uh, but Overwhelming the ballot box and making the results so obvious and overwhelming uh, has to be the priority.
0: I, I see. You know, we we all saw what happened in Georgia a few weeks ago, and then just in Kentucky, I believe this week, of people were just waiting. They finally opened the doors. There were hundreds of people waiting to vote, and they did open the doors and allow people to vote. You see that though. And how does someone watching tonight, or you know, at some point, say, you know, how can I make an impact? How can I change that without being a member of Congress, without being a lobbyist, or something like that?
1: Yeah, check your registration, register others, and again, show up recognizing this is the most important election in our country's history, uh, and being there matters. And and, and Raj, I, I don't say this lightly, and I, I recognize um, that it is a statement that you'd probably know, never hear in our country uh, any time before this. But I believe if the election is close, the president will not accept the result. He'll he'll file frivolous lawsuits and chaos will ensue and that foreign governments who want to help the president would see that as actually the opportunity where they could make the biggest impact by amplifying discord on social media. And so we see it as we don't just have to win by one vote and all the critical uh, electoral college states. We have to win overwhelmingly because that's the only way that I really think that this guy is going to leave and have a, a peaceful transfer
0: of power. Congressman, you just said something uh, very heavy there. Let me let me just review that and just make sure I heard that correctly. Uh, you're saying that if it's a close vote, that that he might stay in office somehow forcibly.
1: I believe it, if Joe Biden wins, but again, it, it's close. Uh, the president has already seeded this argument uh, that there's going to be fraudulent mail-in ballots, and he has uh, a, a an attorney general who's co-signing on that. As you saw, Attorney General Barr. Ah, uh, this weekend say that he does believe that uh, mail-in balloting, uh, you know, can be fraudulent, and I think he—you can just close your eyes and think about November 4, the day after the election—and see the president's attorney general saying that there are issues in, you know, whatever states uh, with mail-in balloting. They're already setting this argument up, and that's why I believe it cannot be close. If it's close. Uh, that that's where it can be
0: chaotic. By all indications, it should be a close election from the polls that I'm seeing, even the you know, the the accumulative polls here.
1: Well, actually, uh, Joe Biden is in a position right now that Hillary Clinton was never in. Uh, he is up in over fifty percent, and he is leading uh, by double digits, uh, at least in the national poll. And then when you look at uh, you know Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, even broaden that out to Arizona, Georgia, and Texas. Uh, Joe Biden is even or ahead, and so I, I really think he's starting to open up. And so our fear is that, again, referendum on an incumbent. Joe Biden is in a great position. Uh, looking at being in a pandemic, Joe Biden is a proven leader. But it's that gauntlet that I mentioned earlier: misinformation, voter suppression, and foreign interference that he's going to have to get through. Uh, and that's going to the, the most chaotic time. May not be, may not be between now and election day.
0: I fear it could be between election day. And the inauguration. Wow, Crystal has a question, Congressman. Gen Z and a lot of millennials are not into Joe Biden. How do we get them to vote in November? What is your opinion on Vote Blue, no matter who?
1: Uh, yeah, you know who's worse than Joe Biden, uh, Donald Trump, and and four more years of what we're going through right now. And I led, uh, in reference in the book, uh, that Speaker Pelosi asked me to take the youngest members, create a group called Future Forum and listen to and learn from them on their issues. And the top five issues uh, that I learned they care about, climate, racial equality, student loan debt, ending gun violence, and healthcare. And Joe Biden on all five of those issues will be there for Gen Z. And uh, again, life is about choices and uh, the choice here I, I think is very clear.
0: Congressman, you've been uh, in Congress now since two thousand, or elected in two thousand and twelve. What's next for you? And I know you, like you said in the book, also uh, there is no reservation system in Congress. So I know you are not going to say, "Well, I am going to do this." But what would you like to do? Are you going to stay in politics in terms of the long term here? Yeah, it's like I am the old man on the block now. Uh,
1: you know, I am the get off my lawn guy. as you know, AOC and all these youngsters that are coming in. It's actually uh, exciting. Uh, one of my younger colleagues. A couple of weeks ago, she texted me and said, hey, if you cannot make it back to vote, I'm willing to be your proxy because we now allow proxy voting so that, you know, people uh, who may be older or have pre-existing conditions uh, can stay home. And I, I first thought, oh, that's that's nice. And then I realized, wait, she thinks I'm old and I used to be the younger member that would try and help out, you know, my more senior colleagues. And so it is exciting to see this. You know, passing of the torch uh, in the Congress. For me, as, as I said in the book, the advice I give our interns is to not seek out a specific office, uh, but to run on the issues. And I ran for president because I saw this opportunity with taking the midterm elections on the issue of healthcare and, you know, young people coming to the polls because of gun violence, that we needed someone in the White House that could meet that momentum. Uh, it didn't work out the way I wanted. I learned a lot. Uh, But I'm going to continue to just follow the issues. And you know I'm not going to be in Congress for 40 years like my predecessor. Uh, I told my wife, uh, you need to be the one if I don't see it myself to say uh, there's other ways to serve. Uh, But I I do believe the day after Donald Trump, uh, we're going to need to pick up uh, the pieces and put this country back together. And I look forward to playing a role in restoring our democracy and, and so many freedoms that have had a wrecking ball taken to them.
0: If Joe Biden wins in November and he asks you to be uh, some port of his cabinet or some sort of role in his uh, in his presidency, uh, what's your response?
1: I love my job uh, in the House. Of, of course, you know I, I think you should consider a request like that uh, to serve your country. But I, I really love uh, doing my job uh, right now in the House, uh, and you know we'll see. But you know again, I there's issues I still want to you know get done in the House, uh, especially on gun violence. And if we have the White House, the House, and the Senate. Uh, It's going to be a big year in 2021 to make us safer in our communities.
0: If I wasn't hosting and moderating this, I would ask this question. So we'll say Raj from the peninsula here. uh, What do you think and what are your thoughts about the exodus of people just leaving the Bay Area, leaving California, specifically though the Bay Area, because it is very difficult to live here. I'm from here. I grew up here. I have a great job, knock on wood. And I've talked about it with my wife and kids. Like, hey, what if we left one day? And I never would have thought And I'm a Bay Area guy. You know me pretty well. I never would have thought I would even have that conversation in my house, but we have.
1: It's the cost of living and the traffic. And to to really bring it back home, um, my top priority is to extend the Dublin Pleasant and Bard station 50 miles over the Altamont. It's a project called Valley Link. It would take 30,000 cars off the road every day. It won't solve all the traffic problems, but I, I think if we don't continue to invest in a second, transbay tube projects like valley link and affordable housing uh, you're going to see you know that massive exodus uh, from the bay area and the, the reason we all want to live here obviously the weather but i think it's the diversity uh, as well you know i have one of the most diverse uh, districts uh, in the whole country and just hearing the stories of you know where people came from what they fled uh, the resiliency they built to come here and then to build Uh, companies and create jobs themselves. That's what makes this place uh, so great. And I would hate to see us lose that.
0: You concerned about uh, Alameda County specifically and the spike in cases and just the Bay Area continuing to spike with COVID cases in these last 72 hours?
1: I am. uh, And I get it. We all want to go out. I went out last night on Main Street, Pleasanton uh, and sat outdoors. uh, But I I am worried that if we're not wearing masks, uh, we're not continuing to increase uh, testing and tracing Uh, And racing to to get a vaccine, Uh, we will see the cases go up. We'll see more loss of life and the economy uh, could, you know, collapse again. So uh, it's going to take discipline. I don't think it's all or nothing, Raj. I don't think it's staying at home for a year and never coming out or we're all at, you know, uh, Disneyland. I I do think there's something in between uh, and we just all have to be responsible. Wear a mask. That's the the best thing any of us can do uh, right
0: now. For so many weeks, Dr. Fauci, uh, Anthony Fauci, was at the White House for those daily briefings being very helpful, uh, at least for, for most people would say that. Uh, all of a sudden, he's dropped off, but he did testify in front of Congress, uh, your colleagues there this week. Is that something that you can do more often? If President Trump is not going to put him on stage, so to speak, can you guys do that a little more often to give us updates?
1: We intend to do that uh, because uh, people like Dr. Fauci and public health experts you know, need a megaphone Uh, to to remind us of the risks and and tell us, you know, where we are and and where we're going. I wish the president was the one uh, that was doing that. Uh, But, you know, we will, the challenge is not only going to be flattening the curve, uh, Raj. I I do think, you know, you're a sports guy. It's not skating to where the puck is. It's skating to where it's going to be. And the next challenge is going to be manufacturing, distributing and having a free vaccine uh, so that we truly can get to zero cases. And, and the Bay Area is going to play a big role in that because of the biotech uh, innovation that we have in the Bay Area. Uh,
0: and I look forward to being a part of that. But um, we have many challenges ahead. Question from Nick in our audience What's the one thing, or yeah, what's the one thing that you like or respect about some of your colleagues across the aisle? You know, I, I really think touting and, and lifting up.
1: Our members of the military, uh, you know, we—I think we do that in our values of how we budget, you know, for veterans, um, et cetera. But I, I do think, you know, our military personnel uh, could always be thanked more. Uh, and, and you know, I don't like that the Republican Party has always, you know, owned that, but it's not by accident. I think they do a really good job of, you know, thanking uh, and respecting our military service members. And I think that's something we could
0: always do better uh, at. And part two of Nick's question was is there a specific example that, that that you might want to share with us that something they've done recently that gives us a little hope about party unification here.
1: Well, I I went to Germany uh back in February uh, to meet with the German Bundestag uh, and I went with uh, a couple Republicans and the goal was to just try and strengthen the NATO alliance. And a Republican from Nashville uh after a couple days uh, of spending time together told me, you know, when I told my friends I was going with you, they said, oh God, I feel so, so sorry that you're going to have to be around you know, Eric Swalwell. And, and they had all the Fox News assumptions uh, about me. And halfway through the trip, we both started talking about legislation we've been working on. And one of my passions is to have genetic testing at birth for every child in America so that they can have targeted therapies and, and be healthier. I told them about this legislation that I've written. And he followed up with me a week later. He sent me a bottle of whiskey from his district that he had made because it's Tennessee. And he said, put me on your bill. Um, I I asked around and, you know, it's actually a good bill. And so, you know, there are, I would say, um, you know, bits and pieces of hope. But frankly, uh, Raj, I I do believe it's going to take a reckoning at the ballot box. Uh, And what I promise to do is to not do to the Republicans, as I perceive that they've done to us, But to try and reach across the aisle and also encourage Vice President President and hopefully President Biden uh, to have a team of rivals cabinet uh, that is not just one Republican in the cabinet, uh, but have a good number of Republicans uh, and show the country the unity uh, that we need. Uh, to pick ourselves up and move forward.
0: Uh, you said this in the book about, uh, I presume, about Republicans who are just kind of turning a blind eye to what's happening in the Oval, o- Oval Office. Uh, forget it. Either you get your ass in the arena or leave, meaning don't turn your uh, a blind eye, get, get in there and change it or say something. Is that what you intended?
1: Yeah, uh, Raj. So many of them told me uh, right after the 2016 election, as we learned what Russia had done, they would say privately in the intel committee, look, I don't like what Russia did. I I don't like what the president says. But as one of them said to me, and I put in the book, when he tweets, he wins. And that was so just demoralizing to hear that they were willing to put, and this is again, the theme of the book, they were willing to put their own jobs first ahead of what we had to do. And to me, what was so mystifying is that we're talking about members of Congress, right? I I would hope that this is not the only job you could get that you would otherwise be employable somewhere else. And maybe as Mitt Romney did, you know, doing the right thing, you know, would one mean that you'd keep your job and two, at least you could keep, uh, you know, your dignity and, and feel like you did something
0: honorable. When you talk to those members of Congress, do you just kind of, I mean, not literally, but figuratively shake them and say, you know, what are you doing? Why did you get here? Why do you want to stay here? Or is it kind of a blank stare? Those who don't want it to speak from, out against what it, If believe. you
1: remember, I, I tried to stand up an independent commission immediately after the Russia interference uh, campaign, because I was 20 on the Hill as an intern when September 11th happened, and I saw the value of an independent commission uh, after September 11th. And so I wanted to do the same thing, take it out of Congress, put it in the hands of experts and elders and statespersons, and was so frustrated. But I didn't want to go after the Republicans publicly until I gave them about six months. You know, I I worked for six months uh, behind the scenes trying to get them on my legislation. And in the book, I I laid out that I would keep texting one of them every new indictment that came out or every new leak, you know, about the Trump Tower Moscow uh, meeting. Uh, that the president's son had with the Russians, every new big story around Russia, it was essentially like, are you ready now? Are you ready now? And then I finally realized that they were never going to stand up to him and that the best thing we could do was to just beat them. And as I said, I'm going to do everything I can to beat them this November. But when there is a reset in January, I'm going to also reach across the aisle and say – let's never go back there and let's put back together so many of the friendships
0: and working relationships that we had. This is a good book. And I would imagine just as what's happened in the last three months, you could write another book. (laughs) Any thoughts about your daughter allowing you to do that? (laughs) I I would actually uh, love to write
1: another book, uh, Raj. I I ran a marathon once, uh, the Big Sur Marathon. And people told me when you run a marathon, you know, immediately after, if you want to do another one, and I absolutely did not want to do another one. Big Sur was a, a big mistake. Writing this book, I felt like I would know immediately after if I wanted to do another one. And I really enjoyed just stitching it all together, you know, and telling a story to my constituents that they would not otherwise uh, know. And so I, I do think about some of these topics like gun violence or uh, opioid abuse, and, and what I've seen, you know, in our district around that issue, um, that there are opportunities to, you know, perhaps tell another story and and help another cause.
0: Okay. As you might know, it is an informed tradition here to ask all of our speakers uh, this final question as we wrap it up. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Congressman Swalwell, let's hear it. Secure mobile voting. If we can't
1: do it, I want to say that we did all we could to try. But when you look at what's happened in Kentucky and you look at what's happened uh, you know, in Georgia with these long lines and people just not showing up because they, they think the outcome uh, is going to have collapsed polling places. If we could find a way to secure the vote online, I think that would really increase uh, civic participation. If we can't do it, I want to at least say that we had a Manhattan like project uh, that tried.
0: Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. Uh, the book is a really fascinating read. Like I said at the beginning of the program, it not only tells you the nuts and bolts about the impeachment process, but uh, just the backstory through Washington, D.C., through the halls of Congress there, uh, and even some uh, anecdotes here from the Bay Area. So we appreciate it. We'll let you get back to your uh, beautiful kitchen, very clean, and hopefully we didn't wake up the kids. Thanks, Raj. Okay, no and Thank problem. you to the Commonwealth Club. All right. Thank you to the Congressman Swalwell for joining us uh, for Inforum. Uh, if you'd like to watch more of our virtual programs to support the Commonwealth Club, uh, please visit our the website, commonwealthclub.org online. I'm Raj Mathai with NBC News. We thank you and stay safe.